All right, if you've been making your way back, some of you are there, others of you are in the process. I um, want to introduce what we were, are going to be really spending our time and attention on for uh, the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to have the opportunity to uh, look together at uh, what we're calling the doctrine of God. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I, I feel like we potentially have bitten off way more than we can chew. And by that I mean I bit for you off way more than probably any of us collectively might be able to chew. Um, and so I've, I've just been so keenly aware of, of actually like what it is we're stepping into in the recent days. And, and some of how the, the prep work goes for uh, just the planning and preparing of, of sermon series. And uh, it was probably seven, eight months ago that um, was thinking about uh, walking through the book of Titus because there were some things that as a church we needed to consider from God's word as it related to how we found ourselves ordered and, and even in our homes. And certainly the membership covenant was a part of that and seeing um, what it is that we understand church membership to be and how critically important that is. And so the, the aspect of and the function of covenanting together um, is a significant one. Um, but then the question of, okay, well, what happens after Titus should always be on the table as well. And, and I remember just thinking to myself that, well, it'd be, it'd be good to walk through a little bit of our statement of faith. And why don't we consider the first part of our statement of faith, which is uh, in regards to God. And, and, and I remember, and, and I'm sure this was of the Lord's doing, and, and I don't intend to at all somehow communicate a, a flippantness, but I remember thinking like, oh, this will come together really easy. And like, this will be fun. And, and, and like, we're going to enjoy this. And, and we may all do those things. Um, but I can tell you that it, it's not come together particularly easy. Because uh, I've just been reminded of the fact that what we will look at this morning, um, thousands of pages in books that we perhaps may not be actually able to understand, have been written. And what we will look at this morning could take all seven weeks and we probably won't scratch the surface. And there are, there are implications or there are ways the scriptures speak about and reveal how the Trinity interacts with each other. And by and large, we're not even going to touch that. And, and we're not really actively going to think through how, how, how the Father and the Son interrelate. And we'll hit on some of that, but just as it relates to really one specific part, and that being salvation. And, and so there are so many things in regards to the doctrine of God and what we understand about God and who He is that we're just not going to understand. Uh, and we're not going to touch on in this series. And so, in many ways, this is a series about the doctrine of God, but we're not accomplishing nearly what there is to tackle and accomplish. But I do have a goal for us over the next several years to just think through and walk through our statement of faith. And rather than just take one point of that and do a 12-week series and, and try to cram everything there is about the Trinity in one week, I, I would prefer us to take a little bit more time and, and walk through what it is that as a, as a church, as a fellowship of churches that we're a part of, that we believe. And, and these things are important and they matter and they're incredibly, incredibly important. And, and I, I, I was running yesterday and was listening to a sermon 
um, which just may sound really strange to you that I that running could be a strange idea for some of you, um, but then also listening to a sermon. Uh, but but the statement was made in this podcast sermon that I was listening to that that what you what you win people with, you will win them to. And this podcast was in regards to evangelism, and it was really in regards to what the, what the church does when it gathers on Sunday mornings. And, and I found that statement to be so helpful at, at really articulating um, some very deeply held beliefs that I have, um, in that there, there is the, the appropriate time for us to consider things that the scriptures teach that may give us a bit of a low-grade headache, because we can't fully wrap our minds around them. And, and rather than simply come together and, and, and try to always um, perhaps walk that line of, well, let's, let's just have an entertaining morning or let's just be, be real, real applicable and purposeful and, all, and those things have their place, what, what we win people with, we win them too. And so there is a sense that, that I want you to be one to the Scriptures. And so there are things such as we looked in the book of Titus that are, that are very easily applicable and understandable in our lives. And, and there's even very specific passages that said, hey, teach the old men to be like this. And so we can walk through those things. And then there's, then there's things like this that, that matter so greatly that if we're not careful, we can just skip over them because they're quote-unquote deep and we may not fully understand them this morning. Um, but I think that we're at a loss if we do that and have that type of approach. And so to perhaps encourage you in our endeavor this morning, uh, there was another quote that I read that I thought was just as good, um, and it says this, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Like, ah, that's, that's pretty good, and we may feel a bit like that this morning, um, trying to understand everything the scriptures teach about who God is, um, again, may cause us to leave here with a bit of a low-grade headache because we just can't fully wrap our minds. And in some ways, it feels like there's gears that are grinding against, and yet we deny it, and we lose some incredibly, incredibly important things. And so over the next seven weeks, we want to dive into this. Let me just give you a brief overview of what the series is going to look like. It, it, this series is absolutely a part of our mission that we exist to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. That's what we would say our mission as a church is. And so when we come to this idea and this topic of, of, of who is God and, and the, the depth of this and, and, and the kind of the mind-hurting reality of, of trying to get things wrapped around who He is, this is all a part of our mission. Because if we're going to be disciples of this God, we, we need to understand who He is. And the implications of the Trinity, they, they actually spill over into all four aspects and parts of our mission, and, or our vision, I should say. And, and so our church has a mission, and it's on the screen there, that we exist or our missions to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And we believe that is accomplished through Christ-centered worship and Christ-centered serving and Christ-centered community groups and Christ-centered witness. And as we think through the Trinity, the implications 
of God's triune nature spill into all four parts of these. For us to understand who God is should actually motivate our participation and even transformation through these four parts of our church vision. So our mission is to be God-glorifying, disciple-making disciples. And we understand that to happen through what is behind me painted onto pallets. And what we are going to look through over the next seven weeks absolutely is a part of this. It's It's foundational to this. And so the next seven weeks will really be composed and comprised this way. This morning we're going to just ask the question, who is God? Who is He? Next week we're going to step into a little bit of what God is like. What are His character attributes? What can we understand from the Scriptures that He is like? Week three we'll hop in and look at a little bit more specifically the the sovereign work of the Father. And then in weeks four and five, Pastor Danny's going to step in and we'll consider together the deity of the Son and how both the Old Testament and the New Testament very clearly reveal the deity of the Son, but then yet what the Son came to do. And then weeks seven, six and seven, the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit, and then as well, what the Holy Spirit does. And so that's what we are going to examine here this morning and over the next six weeks together. And my goal and my prayer is that while there may be things that we touch on that that are hard to understand, that we may lose our minds trying to explain, that as we come to God's Word, as we come and ask God to meet us in His Word, that we may indeed understand more of who He is and more of what He is like and, and how He is described in the character and the attributes that He has. And really, in large regard, that we may in turn grow to love Him more. That our understanding of Him would cause us to love and follow Him more. So before we go any farther, can we pray and ask God to come and perhaps expand our mental capacities this morning to understand things that, uh, that are difficult to understand. Well, God, we do pray and ask that you would give our minds the ability to understand what your word reveals about who you are. God, you have spoken very clearly, you have revealed very clearly things about yourself. And in our finite minds, in our limited capacity as created beings, we can't fully comprehend you as infinite, as eternal. God, everything we know is created. And yet you stand apart from that as not only the creator, but as the one who wasn't created. And there are things about who you are that, that we cannot fully comprehend. And yet, God, you've revealed these things. And you've revealed them so that we may follow you. 
So God, as we step in to your word this morning and consider these things, I, I pray that you would guard my words from error maybe more fervently than I've ever asked or prayed for that before. God, help us to consider what it is that your word teaches about who you are. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. So why does the Trinity matter? That's a question we'll touch on a little bit in the beginning, and we'll really wrap up things here at the end this morning with, uh, I, I think the Trinity matters, and this probably is not a comprehensive list, but in part the Trinity matters because the Trinity is our greatest example for relationships, unity and diversity. I heard it said this past week, that, was, that is the greatest philosophical quest of mankind. How can there be unity in diversity? By and large, we're really good at being diverse in our diversity, but there's unity and diversity, and we've got an election campaign that talking about uniting a party, and, and, and both sides are using that language. But that, that's language that gets after that question, unity and diversity. How does that get expressed here at a local church level? How does that get expressed in your own home where there's unity and diversity? Our purpose is another purpose or another place where the Trinity makes profound implications our response to God, or we could put the word worship. And that, I don't want to just use the word worship and have all of you think like singing or what we're doing here this morning, but our response in its totality, the life we live in response to God. And then our salvation, and we'll, we'll actually get into our salvation much more next week, but that's where we're going to go. We're going to end this morning considering the implications of the Trinity and how those four aspects help us flesh out why this isn't just something for us to cognitively understand. This is actually truth that allows us to build and, and, and have our lives foundationally set upon. And if we can understand some of these things in regards to the Trinity we may not perfectly understand any of what's on the screen, but we may have the right foundation to then continue building and working. And so men for several hundred, if not thousands of years, have sought to try to understand and develop and figure out a way to illustrate or demonstrate what the Trinity is. And if you would go to our website and see our statement of faith, you would find a statement exactly as it's on the screen. You could look up any Baptist church and find the Baptist confessional of their statement of faith. The Apostles' Creed is going to have a statement almost similar or identical to this. The Westminster Shorter Confessional or Catechism would have that. All of that to say, those that believe in the Scriptures and those that have an understanding of salvation by faith in Christ alone agree in what the Scriptures teach about the Trinity. Our statement of faith would express it this way, that there is one true God eternally existing as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're a part of what's called the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches. It's not a denomination per se. It's a group. It's a fellowship of like-minded churches. And we have come together voluntarily, willingly, to join together in mission. And there's a common set of beliefs. And 
principles that allow us to unite with each other. And so our fellowship believes that the Trinity is important. On your bulletin cover, you'll see what's on the screen. And here is perhaps the best way to illustrate the Trinity. People have tried to use an egg because it's got a shell, it's got a yolk, it's got the white. They've tried to use a clover because of the petals, and the, it's, it's, yet it's one. They try to use water because at some point water, it can be all existing as a liquid, solid, and gas. And, and there's a point along, and, and those all begin to break down somewhere. And what you have on the screen perhaps is the best illustration that has been developed in regards to the Trinity. So if you were to look at that with me, you have in the center God. And then moving north or moving vertically, you have God is Father. If we swung down to the left, God is Son. Came around, God is Spirit. But then if you go to the outer ring, you'll see the words, is not. And so the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And those comprise really what amounts to be the seven summary statements in regards to the Trinity. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And before we conclude our morning together, we will sing those truths. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. That song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Such an amazing, powerful song. We're just singing those truths of God in three persons. There is one God equally, eternally existing as three persons. We do not have three gods. We have one God existing in and eternally in three persons. Anybody getting that headache yet? We've got a show of hands. Thank you. So what I want to do with you this morning, we're not actually going to park in one text and look and expound much like we did all through the book of Titus. What I'd like to do this morning is take a giant flyover, the Old Testament and then the New, and I want us to look at, particularly in the Old Testament, where there are passages that speak to God's plurality and or there are specific references to what the New Testament tells us are the members of the Godhead. When we get to the New Testament, the articulation and, and the writing of there being a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is far more, far more detailed. And so when we get there, we will again see and consider where the New Testament points out that there are three persons in the Godhead, and yet there is only one God. And as we begin this, we need to understand that, that revelation, the, the process of God making known to man what would have otherwise been unknown. So if God didn't tell us this, we would have no idea about it. That's 
revelation. That's what we understand is the scriptures. The scriptures are the revelation of God. If, if God had not made that known, we would not have known. That process is progressive. And by that, we need to understand that God did not say everything there was to say about everything in Genesis 1.1. You have Genesis 1.4, for example, where there's more details given. And certainly the process of revelation continues. So what you have in the New Testament in regards to some of these truths is far more detailed than what we have in the Old. But the Old Testament clearly bears witness to God not only being one, there being one God, but God himself eternally existing as a plurality. And it was said by the uh, son-in-law of a former pastor who worked here, he was, this son-in-law was my theology professor in school, that the distinctive emphasis of the Old Testament was the unity of God. And while there's no clear teaching of the Trinity in the Old Testament, there are hints of some type of plurality which we can now understand through the New Testament. That's that progressive revelation. So as we jump into the Old, we will see the hints of God's plurality. So let's do so. We will start at the very beginning. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see, we're not even two verses in, that there is God who has created and His Spirit is doing something. We see that in some sense it's limited in its understanding and its explanation at this point, but in some sense here there is a plurality being mentioned. (coughs) If we would go a few verses ahead. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The important thing for us to notice here is that it is God who is speaking and he is using plural pronouns. He is not talking to Adam here. He is not saying, Adam, let's make somebody in our image because Adam had not been formed yet. That happens in the few verses thereafter. But you see, let us. Make man in our image, after our likeness. Now the word Trinity is not used there. God did not say to himself, he did not tell Moses to record several hundred years later that hey, and and this is where the Trinity becomes understood. So these are hints. These are hints of God's plurality. See the plural pronouns being used. But in regards to the oneness of God, the unity of God, lest we think that God is multiple different gods that we are to worship, perhaps tri-theism or polytheism. You have in Deuteronomy 6.4, God saying to the people and the nation of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's oneness to God. There's a unity to God. In Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This particular verse becomes an incredibly important one when you get to the New Testament 
because it is used several different times in the New Testament. It is used by Jesus and recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While Jesus is in the last week of his life, he is in the temple and he is answering the questions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other individuals coming up trying to trip him up. And he, at this point where it is recorded, begins to go and begin to answer, ask questions himself. And this is the one he asks. It's, it's a bit of a theological humdinger for them. And so he says, uh, if the Lord said this to David, who's he talking about? In the literal translation of Psalm 110 would be that God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see the word, the first Lord being in all capitals, that would be the the covenant name for Lord, that would be Yahweh. The second being the word Adonai. But this verse is also quoted by Peter in Acts 2, verses 34 and 35, as Peter is preaching in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And he begins to articulate how Christ is the Messiah and how Christ is God and how Christ was crucified and was risen and was now ascended. And and what the individuals there at Pentecost are experiencing is not noonday drunkenness by these Galilean disciples. They are experiencing the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And Peter quotes Psalm 110 as part of his sermon. The writer of Hebrews, in verse 13 of chapter 1 of that book, quotes Psalm 110 to make the point that the Son is greater than the angels. That the Son is greater than the angels. So we see in Psalm 110, again, a plurality. You see, the Lord says to my Lord, it's used in the New Testament to describe the two persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, it is picked up in the New Testament and used quite extensively. Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Again, you see plurality in the pronouns that are used. You have whom shall I, singular, send. It's not whom shall we send. It's whom shall I send and who will go for us. It's not who will go for me. Who will go for us? And I don't believe the Lord was talking to Isaiah. Because at this point, he's quivering over in the corner, thinking that his days are going to come to an end. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Later in that book, in Isaiah 63, I gave you the first part of verse 7, because I wanted to just allow a little bit of context to be built. The first part before the three dots there is that Isaiah records, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. In verse 10 he writes, But they rebelled, speaking of the nation of Israel, they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So Isaiah's recounting the steadfast love of the Lord. The His is the Lord. But he says they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So you have reference Here now the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Joel 2, 28 to 29 is perhaps an incredibly important 
passage because of how it is used in the New Testament and the promise that is made there. And the prophet Joel records, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. So you have Joel recording God the Father saying, I'm sending the spirit. And I'm going to pour him out, and I'm going to pour him out indiscriminate of economic status or gender. The external distinctions that people are known by will not matter because the Spirit's coming. And it's this passage in the beginning part of Acts 2 when Peter stands up and begins to preach that he quotes and says, Men, don't be surprised at what you're hearing. These individuals are not drunk like you suppose. What you are seeing here is the fulfillment of the promise that Joel recorded. Peter says it is the Holy Spirit who has fallen. We'll look briefly at two passages where the Holy Spirit is promised to come that precede Peter's use of Joel chapter 2. So as we think through what the Old Testament has to say, we have not touched on a significant percentage of passages in the Old Testament that bear witness to the plurality or the unity of God. We could have listed dozens, dozens more. But the Old Testament does bear witness that God is one, but yet His oneness is eternally expressed in three persons. So moving on to the new, in the New Testament we do not have a verse that says God is triune. We don't have a verse that says Trinity. Those words, triune, Trinity, have come about as individuals have studied and tried to wrap their minds around how do we teach who God is and how God has revealed himself. And you see perhaps most strikingly in the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved, with you I am well pleased. And here you see the Father is in heaven, the Spirit is descending like a dove, and The sun is in the water. So where this verse would not say there is a trinity, you have all three members of the trinity being clearly identified. In regards to the temptation of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record for us that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, and he was led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God drove is the word that Mark uses, drove Jesus into the wilderness. At the very end of Jesus' life, and he's giving his disciples, we would understand by extension us, his, our, our, our marching orders, our mission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. So you see here that Jesus himself, in giving the marching orders to his church, says that you're, the very act of baptizing should be in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit. We'll 
consider a little bit more in detail next week the reasons why for that. And it is because each member of the Trinity is actively engaged in salvation. Jesus would say to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commands and I'll ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You see that the Son is giving instruction to the disciples in regards to the promise of the Spirit from the Father. Again, we, it's not a verse that says there is a trinity, but all three members are spoken of. Jesus, in the beginning of Acts 8, is with the disciples. They're wondering when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. They're wondering where Jesus is going to make Israel great again, and they're going to get the fun little red hats to wear around. They're wondering these things, and Jesus says, no, you guys missed it. I'm not restoring a political kingdom It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. Guys, this is not about a political conquering. This is about a gospel message which is going to go out from your lips everywhere. And the Spirit is going to give you the power you need to do that. And so then Peter answering the question about why and how all of these disciples were now speaking in the languages of those who had traveled and pilgrimaged to Jerusalem. He says, look, they're not drunk. It's because the Spirit has come. He has poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It is the promise of the Father that has been received. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4, the Apostle Paul writes in regards to spiritual gifts. And just, I want you to see that all three members of the Trinity are referenced in this one verse. There's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. A variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all. All three members of the Trinity being written about and in reference to the operations and purpose and functions of spiritual gifts. Paul closes his second letter to the Corinthian church, or what we have as the second letter, saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul would write in Ephesians, we'll look at 1, 3 to 14 next week, in Ephesians 4 he's given a statement for what the church can unify themselves around rather than all of the different things that may distinguish them. He says, no, you put your eyes and your focus and your attention on that there's one body of Christ. There's one Spirit, there's one Lord, there's one faith in Christ, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all. So the very purpose of, and, and the reason that the church is to be united is because of the oneness that is articulated and that is understood. And you have here again, Spirit, Lord, and Father all being referenced. Peter himself writes, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, And the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. Again, here is just a verse that references all three members of the Trinity. Last one. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the half-brother of Jesus that wrote these words. 
all three members of the Trinity being expressed. So we this morning can look at, we, we can look at who God is, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I don't have any shot at explaining to you how. I can't tell you how this works. God hasn't revealed how this works. What he has revealed is that this is. And this can be a point that's difficult. How is God one but yet three? I can't explain to you the how. But the fact that he is is incredibly important for us. And so these implications... Why does the Trinity matter? Why why does it matter for us? Well, our greatest example for relationships is summed up and exemplified by the Trinity. All the principles we need to know about healthy relationships, we can find exemplified by the Trinity. Think about the context of marriage and what we thought through and looked at in the beginning of the year in regards to one flesh. You have unity and diversity. Men and women are co-equal in their created state. They both bear the image of God, and yet God has given them distinct roles. There is unity, and there is distinction. There's diversity. So how am I to love my wife? How am I to interact with my wife? How is she to love and interact with me? We can find principles from the Trinity where we can see unity and diversity being worked out. In regards to the church, whether it be global, whether we think about the believers that met earlier today in Africa, in China, in Russia, the believers in Ecuador that are grieving and struggling with the earthquake that has happened, how, how can there be unity in the body of Christ that's understood globally with all the diversity that's everywhere. Well, unity and diversity is what we see exemplified in the Trinity. You just put that on a local level. What brings us together here? How do we function with one another here, united in something, and yet with incredible diversity just in this room? Age, gender, gifts, passions, interests. There's diversity all over the place. You see in the Trinity diversity in the role and function of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet unity in who they are. Our purpose. I told you this earlier this morning that our purpose is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. The Trinity has some incredible and profound implications in regards to our purpose. Because if we understand the Trinity, God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing and dwelling in perfect community, in perfect harmony, in perfect loving relationship with in Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, that means that you and I actually don't give God something that He's lacking. And this, this one might be a little philosophical for us this morning when we say that our mission is to glorify God it is not somehow because God needs more glory God is not lacking for glory that we come and supply when we gather together 
His tank is not on empty. He doesn't wait for Sunday morning to roll around so that he might get a recharge on glory when his people come and meet. So when we say we exist to glorify God, we are saying, or we are not saying, that we're trying to provide something for God that he is lacking. And this has implications all over the place. I mean, when you consider the act of giving that happened earlier today, God doesn't need your 10 bucks. He owns everything. Quite frankly, he owns that 10 bucks, whether you give it to him or not. He doesn't need you to give it to him. So our purpose in glorifying God is not to supply God with something that he is lacking. And so when we come to God and we respond to him, whether that be corporately and collectively, or whether that be just as we live our lives in worship to him, our response to God is to not or is not to provide something that he's missing. And it bears the question, then, well, then why are we glorifying him? He didn't create us because he needed a group of people to come and glorify him. And what actually is revealed and discovered as we consider these things is that when we respond to God and we consider our purpose to actually be my life, live for God's glory, it is not God who receives. It's me. That when I consider the, the parts of my life to be lived for the glory of God and the meal that He provided for me to be, to be an expression of His glory and His gracious gift, and I recognize that, I actually become the recipient. And my glorifying of Him is not to supply something that He's lacking. Because He has everything He needs in Himself. And He has eternally existed that way. Well, lastly, in regards to our salvation, and we'll flesh this out in much greater detail next week, we see in the Trinity that the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. It was not the Spirit who died on the cross. It was not the Spirit who loved the world so much that He sent the Father that whosoever believes in the Father will have it No, we have the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. And so even in regards to our salvation and the the roles that each member of the Trinity plays, there are significant truths there for us to turn our focus and attention on. And so as we close this morning, I told you that we were going to sing holy, holy, holy. And then the band's going to introduce a new song to you. And the song's called, O God of Our Salvation. And that song, verse 1, is all about the role of the Father in salvation. The Father planning. Verse 2 is about the role of the Son in salvation. The Son accomplishing. And verse 3 is about the role of the Spirit in salvation. The Spirit applying And so we have this God of our salvation, this blessed three in one who has come and who has wrought salvation for his people. And there are incredible things that over the next six, seven weeks we are going to attempt to flesh out as we consider who is this God, what is he like, and what has he done. So would you stand and sing as they lead us please?